0: All right, this is Lecture 3, Part 1. And if you recall, last time we were talking about or introducing the subject of how do cells generate a plasma membrane potential. These membrane potentials, as I said, are crucial for the function, uh, uh, the normal function of many different cell types, which establish the normal function of um, many different organs, most notably the heart, the brain, all nerves. Uh, any muscle in the body are crucial. Uh, The plasma membrane potential is crucial for that function. So I said that this involves the energy dependent movement of ions across the plasma membrane and the most relevant ions, well I mentioned sodium, potassium, and chloride. We'll talk about all three of those but the most important two that are relevant to generating the membrane potential are sodium and potassium. But I will mention chloride because it becomes important later on as we talk about cell to cell communication, particularly in the nervous system. Uh, And then second, besides the energy dependent movement of ions, then we have the passive selective movement of ions across the plasma membrane. And it's really quite simple once you understand the components involved and the order in which those components uh, play their role and in, in interact in the process. So the last thing that I, I drew for the last lecture was this generic cell. So here we, here we have our cell with the plasma membrane, and I just illustrated as a simple observation that the concentrations of the three major ions in the body—sodium, potassium, and chloride—differ uh, in the extracellular fluid compartment (ECF) versus the cytoplasmic compartment. With sodium lower inside the cell than out, potassium higher inside the cell than out, and chloride lower inside the cells than out. And those differences. concentration are really a reflection of step one which is the energy dependent movement of the ions and we just want to fill in the details about the specific components that are involved in that energy dependent movement and then we'll talk about the passive selective movement of ions which is the second crucial step and both of these events or processes depend upon the functional properties of the plasma membrane. And so I wanna review, and those functional properties of the plasma membrane are imparted by the types of proteins found within the membrane. So the types of membrane proteins present Are critical then to understanding um, the functional properties of the membrane and how they are, those individual proteins are involved in these two steps. Right. Now, if we take this generic line circle that I've drawn uh, to represent the plasma membrane, and we look a bit closer at it, this is from figure 33 on page 58 in the book. So here is the actual plasma membrane, and the phospholipid bilayer is represented in orange, right, as the individual phospholipids coming together to form the bilayer. And then embedded within the membrane is highlighted here is a membrane protein. And the plasma membrane has lots of different types of membrane proteins present embedded within them. And that whole uh, collective set of membrane proteins really determines the overall functional properties of the plasma membrane. And so what we're gonna do is review some relevant functional classes of membrane proteins Uh, some of which are going to be directly relevant to how cells generate a membrane potential. And then I'll talk about, mention a few others that become important later on down the road. But hopefully this is a review for most of you. So the first functional group are the transporters. So as the name here implies, a, a transport protein is one that binds to a select solute and moves it across the membrane. From one side to the other, it's what a transporter does. Uh, Section 3.5 in the book, starting on page 70, is the section on assisted membrane transport. And that whole section essentially is a more detailed review of what I'm going to talk about. So you can refer to this section in the book as I go through these different transporters. All right, group number one. um, Transporters then can be subdivided functionally into three smaller groups but these are still relatively broad. Uh, The first of those are the primary active transporters. And a primary active transporter is one that splits ATP to move a solute against its favorable gradient. This, again, across the membrane. Against its favorable gradient. And what I mean by that, well, I'll just illustrate it here with a little diagram. So let's say we have our plasma membrane, just drawing a small segment of it. And let's draw a circle here to indicate that this is the primary active transporter. And let's say we have solute X. And we have a concentration of X in the cytoplasm. Cytoplasmic compartment is down here. Interstitial fluid compartment is up above. And we'll say that X is low in concentration inside the cell whereas the concentration of X is, in the interstitial fluid, is higher. If this solute X is moved from its lower concentration to higher concentration, this is unfavorable movement. It's unfavorable because it cannot or does not happen spontaneously that movement requires an input of energy. So that's what against its favorable gradient means. Requires an input of energy in some form in order for that movement, unfavorable movement to occur. And for a primary active transporter, the input of energy comes from the hydrolysis of ATP into adenosine diphosphate and the inorganic phosphate. All right, so that's a primary active transporter. And in through this transport process with this input of energy, this can drive the movement of an ion to generate a concentration gradient. Well, for any solute that it's actually moving. So as this active transport process occurs, the concentration of X in the cell gets lower, right, because it's being moved outside the cell, and the concentration of X in the interstitial fluid gets higher. So this active transport is a way of being able to generate and maintain solute concentration gradients across the membrane. Now, a second group of transporters are what are called the secondary active transporters. So these are transporters that use the favorable gradient of one solute. To move a second solute against its favorable gradient so we have two different transported solutes illustrate this here. So here's our secondary active transporter in green. And this is the plasma membrane again. This is the cytoplasm. Out here's the interstitial fluid. So again, let's have solute X at a higher concentration outside the cell and lower inside the cell. And let's assume that the secondary active transport is transporting X from inside the cell to outside the cell. So again, right, this is the unfavorable movement, which is only going to occur if this transport protein has some source of energy to drive that movement. And in this case, this comes from the movement of a second solute. So let's bring in solute Y, whose concentration in the cytoplasm is high, and whose concentration in the interstitial fluid is low. Now, this transporter, if it recognizes and can bind to Y and move it across the membrane, will do so and move it from its high concentration to low. And this is the favorable movement, right? The spontaneous movement. When a solute is, moves or moves down its favorable gradient, there is energy available from that movement which can drive the transport of a solute in an unfavorable direction. So the energy for this unfavorable transport is coming from the favorable movement of another solute, That's secondary active transport. Now, in this case, there are two subgroups of secondary active transporters. They are what are called the symporters. And this is when both solutes move in the same direction. which is uh, what I've shown here in this example, right? Both X and Y are moving from inside the cell to outside the cell. But the alternative is an antiporter, where the two solutes are moving in opposite directions. So in the case of an antiporter, if this was an antiporter, then if we reversed the concentration of Y, such that it was high outside the cell and low inside the cell, then the favorable transport of Y would be into the cell, and that would then drive the movement of X outside the cell. That would be an antiporter. So we have symporters and antiporters. And the third basic type are what are called of transporters are what are called the facilitative transporters. So these are a class of transporters that will move a solute down its favorable gradient. So from high to low, here's our facilitative transporter. If we have solute x outside that's high concentration, solute x inside that's low, facilitative transport is one where x is moved down its favorable gradient. So, there's no input of energy required for this process since the solute is, the movement is energetically favorable to begin with. Now, I will say that um, facilitative transport is oftentimes referred to as facilitated diffusion. So this is the same thing as facilitative transport. But I much prefer uh, and will use facilitative transport over facilitative diffusion, because fundamentally diffusion differs from transport. All right, to bring in... um, Much of section 3.5 in the book discusses in, in further detail facilitated transport and the details of that and gives some specific examples, some primary active transport as well as some secondary active transport. And so this section goes from page 70 through to page 77 in the book and I can bring in a couple of pictures here. Um. All right, so this is an example of primary active transport. Figure 316 on page 74. This is an example of primary active transport. And the specific transporter that's being shown here, which we're going to talk about in more detail, is the sodium potassium ATPase. Right. And I can also show they have a figure on facility uh, uh, um sorry secondary active transport. this is figure 317 on page 75 and this one is illustrating the right the two different types of secondary active transport being symport or antiport depending on whether both solutes are moving in the same direction or opposite direction. And the solute examples that they're giving in this figure are uh, they're talking about um, well at least in one instance uh, one of the solutes is an ion. And right for this simport the ion is shown to be going from its high area of higher concentration to lower. So that's the favorable movement. And then that transport process is being driven, It is used to drive the movement of the red solute here from its lower concentration to its higher concentration. And for the antiport then, it's just showing the opposite where the solute in yellow here is going from low to high in the opposite direction to the ion going from high to low. Right, so those are examples in the book. Now, both of these classes of, well, the transport proteins, as you might anticipate, are going to be crucial for the energy-dependent movement. So these are going to be involved in our first step in how cells generate a membrane potential, which is the energy-dependent ion movement step. And we'll talk about... Uh, one primary active transporter, as well as one secondary active transporter in that process. Alright, so we have the transporters, second group of membrane proteins, then, sorry, let me go back up here, are the channels. Second functional class. So channels are proteins in the membrane, that form hydrophilic pores, and let me make this a little bit, that form selective hydrophilic hydrophilic pores through the lipid bilayer. So they effectively create an avenue for certain hydrophilic solutes to move across the the lipid bilayer. Now channels are generally going to fall into one of two broad groups. The first group are the ion channels, and as the name implies, the Core formed is selective to allow movement of a particular ion. It could be that ion could be sodium, or it could be potassium, or it could be calcium. That's the selectivity bit. What specific ion will it let through? All right, so we can even talk about subsets of ion channels being um, sodium selective, potassium selective, calcium selective. And the other broad group of Channels are what are called the aquaporins. These are those where the pore is actually not selective for a solute, but for the solvent, water. So Moving a water across the membrane. And an important thing to understand and keep in mind about channels is that the movement, channels allow the movement of either an ion or water down their favorable gradients. So for both of these, for ion or water movement, down their favorable gradient. All right, so for an ion, this is going to be from uh, a higher concentration to a lower concentration. And for water, it would be from, from an area of um, a lower os- osmolarity to a higher osmolarity, right? Osmolarity and differences in, in Osmolarity of fluids drive water movement. And I will emphasize the fact that channels do not move solutes or water against their favorable gradient. Right. They only allow for movement down their favorable gradient. So effectively what this means is that ion, ion diffusion across the membrane occurs through channels. only because there's a gradient present that uh, is going to drive that diffusion. And the same goes for water. right? And channels do not mediate transport. And the reason that they are distinguished from transporters is that uh, channels do not actually bind to the solute and then move it across. So for any ion channel, the channel doesn't actually bind to the ion, but it has a selectivity channel which allows the ion to diffuse through it. So channels don't mediate transport, they mediate diffusion, All right, So that's important to keep in mind. And from our thinking back to our, our process of generating membrane potential, those channels are going to be the critical component for the um, passive movement of ions. Across the membrane um, in, in the um, steps in generating the plasma membrane potential. Now, there's besides channels and transporters, which are the relevant proteins for our discussion here, I do want to mention two other protein uh, classes that aren't in involved in in the membrane potential, but they're going to be important later on. So the first are the receptors. So receptors um, these bind to a select solute, typically within outside the cell in the interstitial fluid uh, to trigger or initiate some intracellular response. So we'll talk about different types of receptors when we get to cell-cell communication. And then the last functional group membrane proteins are the enzymes, which as you know these are proteins that speed up the rate of a chemical reaction. All right, so that's just a review of the four different functional classes of membrane proteins, enzymes, receptors, channels, and transporters. So getting back to our discussion of the membrane potential, let's look then at the energy-dependent movement of sodium, potassium, and chloride across the plasma membrane three ions that we're interested in. All right, the first is we have a primary active transporter called a sodium-potassium ATPase. So the ATPase referring to the hydrolysis of ATP to drive the movement of both sodium and potassium against their favorable gradients. So this is a primary active transport. And we'll illustrate this movement here. So here's our plasma membrane. Here's the sodium potassium pump embedded in the membrane. This transporter moves three sodium ions outside the cell from in to out. Remember here's the cytoplasm. Here's the interstitial fluid while also moving two potassium ions into the cell. And remember, the concentration of sodium, as I indicated before, out in the interstitial fluid is relatively high compared to what it is inside the cell in the cytoplasm, which is low. So the movement, obviously, is unfavorable. And for potassium, concentration of potassium in the cytoplasm is high, and in the interstitial fluid is low. So potassium is also being moved un- in the unfavorable direction. And the input of the energy necessary to transport both of these ions against their favorable gradient comes from the hydrolysis of ATP, to ADP and inorganic phosphate. All right, so that's the activity of the sodium potassium pump. And that, the actual specific steps involved in this transport process, as well as the hydrolysis of ATP are shown in figure 316 in the book on page 74. And that's what this figure is right here, detailing the specific steps of of transport. So, uh, an interesting observation about this pump is that the transport is... Electrogenic. Electrogenic. What that means is that, if you look at what's happening here, is that there's a net transport of charge across the membrane each time ATP is split. right? we have three sodium out but only two potassium are transported in so each time transport occurs there is one positive charge that leaves the cell that's electrogenic there's a net movement of positive charge by transport now that is in contrast to what's called Electroneutral transport. That would be where there's no net transport of charge across the membrane. So if the pump moved two sodium out and two potassium in, then it would be electroneutral. But the fact that it is transporting unequal numbers of ions means that uh, it is electrogenic. And that's important because that, well, it's somewhat important in that the electrogenic transport, it's going to create an unequal charge distribution across the membrane. And so it's going to generate a membrane potential by the sodium-potassium pump generates a small plasma membrane potential. Now let's come back up here to this figure to illustrate the convention that we use to measure membrane potentials. So uh, whether you're a physiologist trying to measure the membrane potential across a cell membrane or an electrician trying to measure the voltage across uh, an outlet, the two leads on an outlet, you measure this with a voltmeter. Uh, Physiologists use a more sensitive voltmeter than an electrician, but the principle is the same. You're measuring how much charge is in one area relative to some other area. So all voltmeters will have uh, two leads to them. And uh, one lead is called a reference lead, and the other lead is what's called the hot lead. So, by convention in physiology, the reference lead to the voltmeter, which is typically in black, is placed in the interstitial fluid. So, here's our reference lead in the interstitial fluid. The hot lead. Is typically color-coded in red and this is poked through the plasma membrane and inserted into the cytoplasm. So here's our hot lead and this is placed in the cytoplasm. So what the voltmeter is now measuring is how much charge is present within the cytoplasm of the cell relative to what the reference is um, detecting in the interstitial fluid. And in that way, it can measure the, if there's an unequal charge distribution. Now, for this electrogenic transport, if there's net positive charge being transported out of the cell, that's going to leave a slight deficit of positive charges within the cell and a slight surplus of positive charge outside the cell. Therefore, it's going to create a negative plasma membrane potential, right? The inside is gonna be relatively negative with respect to the outside. So the sodium potassium ATPase activity generates plasma membrane potential of about minus 3 millivolts, which is a relatively small membrane potential just because of that unequal um, transport of ions. Now, this is only a minor contributor to the membrane potential that cells generate. So it's not the main uh, process by which the, the plasma membrane potential is generated. Now, one other transporter I want to mention, and you notice that, right, well, this sodium potassium pump is going to be important, or it is important because obviously it's by this active transport, it's maintaining and establishing the lower concentration of sodium in the cell compared to the higher concentration of sodium outside the cell. And for potassium, it's just the opposite. It's helping to maintain and accumulate potassium inside the cell to maintain its high concentration inside the cell and its low concentration outside the cell. So, really, the critical feature of the sodium-potassium pump is that It is crucial for establishing and maintaining, I'm sloppy with my writing, the sodium and potassium concentrations, both in the cytoplasm of virtually all cells in your body and the interstitial fluid within the body. All right, so my 40 minutes are practically up here. Let me then just mention briefly the one other energy-dependent transporter, and that is the potassium chloride symporter. So, this is a secondary active transporter that drives movement of chloride actively out of the cell and Potassium moves down its favorable gradient from high to low, right? This is the plasma membrane. This is the cytoplasm. This is the interstitial fluid. This is the favorable movement. And chloride, because this is a symporter, both of these solutes are moving in the same direction. Chloride is moved out, and this is the unfavorable movement. If you remember, chloride is relatively low inside the cell and high outside the cell. So, this active transport process is uh, important for the chloride gradient across cells. All right, so um, those are the two specific uh, trans- active transport processes, the energy dependent processes, important for helping to establish the gradients for sodium, potassium, and chloride that we see across the plasma membrane within the body, uh, virtually all cells within the body. Now, it's only the sodium and potassium pump that are uh, that's going to be relevant to our next step and, and, and how it's involved in, in helping to establish the, the overall membrane potential. All right, so I'll leave... Uh, in part one here, and we'll pick this up on part two. All right, so this is lecture three, part two. And what I did here, I brought in a table from the book. So this is table three, two in the book on page 78. And this is a fairly good summary of what I just talked about in terms of the different types of solute movement across a membrane, a biological membrane. One thing I will correct about this table that I don't like is um, they label this as method of transport where I would prefer to call this method of movement of solute. So methods of membrane transport will change to movement. And the reason that I would change this is because Right, the first one that they show here is simple diffusion, which is uh, movement through a process that doesn't require um, not uh, that doesn't require a transporter. So, right, you can get movement by diffusion of a, a hydrophobic solute directly through the bilayer, or through a protein channel or by osmosis, which is the osmotic movement of water, through the aquaporins. And if an ion or water is moving through a channel or if you have a hydrophobic solute moving directly across the lipid bilayer, uh, none of those processes are transport. They're um, They're just diffusion. So from that standpoint, we want to distinguish, or I want to specifically distinguish between transport and diffusion as separate processes. Transport requires that there's a protein present that has to bind to the solute and then physically move it across the membrane. And that doesn't happen with diffusion, either through channels or through the lipid bilayer itself. All right, so We have simple diffusion, movement down a favorable gradient that doesn't require a transporter. And then we have the carrier-mediated diffusion, right, which is uh, mediated by transporters. And here's the primary active, secondary active transport that I mentioned, and then the facilitative. And here I said we're going to call this facilitative transport instead of facilitated diffusion. And I didn't talk about vesicular transport, so we won't won't worry about this bottom bit. All right, so Table 3-2 is a nice summary of of just what I went over, if you want to look, look through that table. Now, let's, since we were talking about the active transport of sodium, potassium, and chloride, let's actually be more quantitative about the differences in concentrations of these ions. So I'm going to make a table here and we're going to look at the concentrations in the interstitial fluid, concentration of the ion within the cytoplasm, and Sodium, potassium, and chloride. So these are going to be our quantitative concentrations. These ions, instead of saying high and low, let's put some exact numbers to these. Sodium concentration, and these are going to be listed in molarity. So in the interstitial fluid, sodium is about 150 millimolar, right? millimoles per liter. And in the cytoplasm, it's about 15 millimolar. Potassium, it's about five millimolar outside the cell and about 150 millimolar inside the cell. Now these concentrations, they're, they're rounded up to the nearest five millimolar. And these are shown in table 3.3 in the book on page 80. But oddly, in that table, uh, Sherwood does not show the chloride. And I'm not quite sure why she doesn't show chloride, because it's an important anion. So let's list the chloride concentrations. So outside the cell, it's about 155 millimolar. And inside the cell, it's about 10 millimolar. Now, there's also another anion. Well, the, the, the only anion, actually, that she lists in Table 3-3 is what she calls the A-. And she has the e- extracellular concentration is essentially zero and the intracellular at about 65 millimolar. So this A- minus refers to the collection of all soluble proteins within or outside the cell. And the reason that she lists this in this table is that... Um, proteins generally oftentimes have a net charge to them. So they are charged molecules. And most proteins have a net negative charge to them. And so they will contribute to the overall charge balance in the cell. So that's why she lists these protein anions A-. And the combination of Right? Inside the cell, obviously, cells make all kinds of different proteins, and so the, there's going to be a high concentration of proteins inside the cell, but there's very few in the interstitial fluid. So the combination of all those soluble proteins in the cell, most of them having a negative charge, together with the chloride in, in the um, cytoplasm, those net negative charges tend to balance out the sodium and potassium positive charges so that overall you have a balance between positive and negative charges inside the cell, and you also have that same balance outside the cell. All right, so these are the actual concentrations of these ions. And the other thing let's point out specifically is the ion concentration gradient from one side to the other. The gradient is the difference in concentrations, uh, which you can express as a ratio. So if we look at sodium, right, uh, the concentration outside is tenfold greater outside the cell than inside the cell. And that concentration gradient creates a favorable force for the movement of sodium from, inside, uh, from outside the cell to in. So we can say that there's a f- favorable gradient from outside the cell to inside the cell for movement of sodium. For potassium, it's a 30-fold gradient, but the favorable gradient is the opposite from in to out. And for chloride, it's about a 15.5-fold gradient and favorable movement. Is from out to in. So I'm going to highlight these right here concentrations, sodium, potassium, and chloride. Remember that the interstitial fluid is part of the internal environment. Of an animal, that's crucial for the survival of your cells, and in a hospital setting or in a research setting, oftentimes, uh, what's necessary is that you know if, if you're going to help a sick patient, that requires the. Uh, administration of fluids into the patient to help maintain the composition of the internal environment. Or if you're doing a research experiment on cells, then you have to put the cells in a fluid that mimics what they would normally see within the body in the internal environment. So whether in a hospital setting or a research setting. Uh, we talk about then uh, using what's called a physiological saline solution. And we can express a physiological saline solution as uh, the concentrations of salts that are physiologically present in the body. And sodium Potassium and chloride are the major ions present in the body. And so they constitute a major um, proportion of all the solutes that you find in the extracellular fluid. So, because of this, if we have to administer um, a fluid to a sick person in the hospital, or we have to you know, uh, do an experiment with cells in a dish. You want to make sure that um, the administration of the fluid either into the person or uh, to the cells that you've isolated, that the composition of that fluid is the same as what's present normally. So a physiological saline solution, then, is one that contains 150 millimolar sodium chloride and 5 millimolar potassium chloride. Because if you make up a solution with these concentrations, then... uh, The salts ionize to give you the respective concentrations seen uh, within the body. And just to give you an example of this, I'm sure that many of you are familiar with the fact that if you've ever been to a hospital um, and been administered an IV or intravenous fluids, uh, let me... IV fluids, right? What a nurse or doctor will do is that they'll bring in a clear bag of liquid connected to a tube and then then they'll put a needle on the end of it and then they'll stick the needle into your one of your veins and then they'll start allowing administration of that fluid directly into your plasma fluid compartment. So what's in this fluid that's being administered physiologically? Well, oftentimes these, if you have ever looked closely at this bag of fluid that's being uh, administered into the body, I mean, what's in that? Well, it's certainly not water because if you just administered water into uh, the circulatory system, this could rapidly lead to death. If you administer water directly into the cardiovascular system, uh, this can actually cause the heart to stop. And the main reason is if you administer water in, it's going to severely disrupt the concentrations of sodium and potassium in the extracellular fluid. And then that's going to interfere with heart function as well as brain function. But what's in this bag of fluid, clinically, it's oftentimes listed as 0.9% sodium chloride solution. Not always, but in a clinical setting, this is often what you see, 0.9% sodium chloride And this is just sort of a practical way of realizing that um, the concentration of ions can be expressed in different ways. And if you see a concentration of these ions listed as a percent, what that refers to is the weight of sodium chloride dissolved as a percent of the total weight of the fluid. So as example, think back to your basic chemistry. One milliliter of water weighs one gram. That's by definition or 1,000 milligrams, right? So if you wanted to make up a 0.9% sodium chloride solution, you're going to weigh out the sodium chloride salt at 0.9% of the weight of the total volume that you're using. So 0.9% of 1,000 milligrams would be nine milligrams sodium chloride. So you would weigh out nine milligrams, dissolve it in one milliliter of water. So you get a nine mg per mil sodium chloride solution. That's 0.9% sodium chloride. Now, how does that relate to what I just talked about, in terms of these physiological concentrations, 150 millimolar sodium chloride. Well, if you know the molecular weight of um, sodium chloride, which is 58.44, you can work out that that 0.9% works out to 154 millimolar sodium chloride. All right, so the point here is that physiological concentrations of these critical ions in the body can be expressed in different, different ways, but they end up meaning the same thing, and that is the critical concentrations that are necessary to maintain relatively constant within the internal environment of the body so that your cells and your body function normally. So whether you express it as a percent weight per unit volume or in molarity, um, these concentrations are crucial. All right. So getting back to our table here. We have the internal environment of the body and the ionic concentrations here and the concentration gradients right these are all these gradients are because of the energy dependent ion movement due to the sodium potassium pump for the sodium and potassium gradients and the potassium chloride symporter for the chloride gradient. So that's step one, and we now have at least a better understanding of how those gradients are established and maintained. This brings us to our second step, We're going to talk in a bit more detail about the passive selective movement of ions across the plasma membrane. Now this is the This is going to be the most important process in how cells generate a membrane potential. So let's redraw. Plasma membrane of a cell and list the concentrations. So again, remember this is the cytoplasmic compartment down below. This is the interstitial fluid and compartment of the cell up above. Concentration of potassium is 150 millimolar inside the cell. Concentration of potassium in the interstitial fluid is 5 millimolar. And for sodium, we'll put over here. Concentration of sodium is 150. Con- concentration of sodium and cytoplasm is about 15 millimolar. Now, let's explicitly draw the, uh, or depict the gradient for both of these ions, the favorable gradient driven by the difference in concentration. So we're going to draw a red arrow outward for potassium. And this arrow is meant to designate the direction of the chemical gradient, or what we'll call the chemical force. acting on potassium, All right? We call, have a capital C for the concentration gradient or chemical force, same thing, right? Potassium will move passively down its favorable gradient from inside the cell to outside the cell because of that difference in concentration. For sodium, then, it's going to be the opposite. The favorable chemical gradient is from outside the cell to inside the cell. Now, these arrows are not meant to indicate that the ions are actually moving across the membrane but simply that there is a possibility that those ions can move. So we have a possibility for what we call net diffusion across the membrane. Because of the presence of the concentration gradient, the chemical force. But critically, what is also necessary, if net diffusion is to occur, it actually requires two things. As I said, the first is a net force acting on the ion. Now, that net force, we said, can be a concentration gradient or chemical force. But it can also occur, because ions are charged, because of the presence of an electrical gradient. So when we talk about a net force, the net force, if if both the concentration and electrical gradient are present, then we talk about, then you have to add both of these to figure out what the net force is. And that net force would be called the net electrochemical force. acting on the ion. So there has to be a a net electrochemical force present in order for net diffusion to occur. But the other critical requirement is that a property of the plasma membrane, the membrane has to be permeable. the ion. Ions are hydrophilic. They cannot just diffuse directly through the lipid bilayer. So a lipid bilayer alone is completely impermeable to ions. So there has to be a property conferred upon the membrane to give it a permeability to an ion. And both of these have to be present, both of these requirements. must be present in order for net diffusion of any ion to occur across a membrane. Now let's start simple and just ask the question, what happens if the plasma membrane is Permeable to sodium, but not potassium. And by the way, when we talk about permeabilities of the membrane to an ion, uh, we're going to abbreviate this. So if I write P subscript N, this refers to permeability of the membrane to sodium. P. K refers to the permeability of the membrane to the potassium. So, in this case, we're going to take the scenario where the membrane is freely permeable to sodium. So, we're just going to say the permeability to sodium is one. That's our designated freely, freely permeable. And not to potassium means that there's no permeability. Permeability to potassium is zero. So, what would happen under this particular condition? Uh, We know what the concentration gradient is for both ions, but now we're saying that the membrane is permeable such that sodium can move, but even though there's a chemical force for potassium, it's not actually going to move down its favorable gradient because there's not a permeability present. So in this case, then, obviously, there's going to be net sodium movement by diffusion from outside the cell to inside the cell, right, down its favorable gradient. And that means that there's going to be a net positive charge moving into the cell. So our voltmeter, if we were again monitoring the voltage across the plasma membrane with our voltmeter, this is going to read as a positive value The inside of the cell is going to be positively, more positively charged than the outside of the cell is. So, critically, and this is the selective diffusion part, right? If the membrane is only selectively allows for sodium movement down its favorable gradient, then, then that net movement will create a membrane potential across the cell. So the delta-psi p is positive. So the critical thing here is that net diffusion of a single type of ion can lead to the generation of a membrane potential. And it's as simple as that. And then we can do the opposite scenario, what happens if the membrane permeability to potassium is one and permeability to sodium is zero. So now the membrane is freely permeable to potassium and completely impermeable to sodium. Well again coming back up here importantly you look now okay potassium can freely move from inside the cell to out, but sodium cannot move at all because it, the membrane's not permeable. So this will give us net potassium movement by diffusion from the cytoplasm inside the cell to the interstitial fluid outside the cell. So we have net positive charge moving out since potassium is positively charged. And so now the plasma membrane potential is negative inside the cell. Now the inside of the cell has a deficit of positive charges relative to the outside because of that diffusion. So this is just a simple illustration of how crucial it is to the process of generating the plasma membrane potential, the selective, passive movement of an ion across the plasma membrane can generate this voltage, this unequal distribution of charge across the membrane that we call the membrane potential. Now, let's ask the question, and this is All described, by the way, in section 3.6. So if I come back up here, really the description of the passive selective movement is in section 3.6 in the book, starting on page 81. All right, so membrane potential can be positive or negative depending upon whether or not the membrane is permeable to sodium or potassium. Therefore, critically, the magnitude and sine uh, the membrane potential depends on the permeability of the membrane to sodium and potassium. Oh, so there's a You can probably hear the thunder in the background. It's just hitting here now. So I hope you can hear over me. Now let's ask the question, instead of just saying, well, the membrane potential can be either positive or negative depending upon whether sodium or or potassium moves by diffusion. Let, let's be more quantitative and talk about, or ask the question, how large can the plasma membrane potential get when um, either sodium or potassium diffusion occurs? Because this is actually important um, for triggering changes in cell function also, is how big of a plasma membrane potential can be generated and then what happens if that changes by a certain amount. So back in the late 1800s, there was a physical chemist by the name of Walther Nernst who was able to come up with a, the mathematical relationship that accurately can predict how large of a voltage can be generated by the diffusion of a single type of ion. And this has since become known as the Nernst equation. And the Nernst equation is shown in the book on page 81. So let me draw this out. The voltage generated across the plasma membrane is equal to 2.3 times RTZ. F times the log, the concentration of an ion on the reference side of the membrane to the concentration of an ion on the hot side of the membrane. So this is the basic Nernst equation right here. And just to avoid confusion, let me put that multiplication sign as a dot here. I'm going to simplify this so you don't need to remember uh, these constants, but R refers to the universal gas constant. So this is the gas constant. T is temperature. And in this is in Kelvin, not Fahrenheit or not Celsius. F refers to the Faraday constant. And Z refers to the valence of the ion. And my time has run out, meaning what's the charge of the ion? The reference in the hot refer to the two different sides of the membrane uh, and the concentrations of the ions on those two sides. So again, I said in physiology, the convention is that uh, the reference side is the side where you stick the reference lead of a voltmeter and in physiology, we always do put this reference in the interstitial fluid. The hot side and becomes the cytoplasmic compartment where we stick the hot lead. Now, physiologically, at physiological body temperature of 37 degrees Celsius or 310 degrees Kelvin, I believe, um, if we substitute the physiological temperature in as 310 Kelvin, uh, this is a constant, the Faraday constant. 2.3 is another constant term here. We can simplify this to indicate... It's 61 over the valence of the ion times the log of the concentration of the ion in the interstitial fluid divided by the concentration of the ion in the cytoplasm. Alright, So this is our simplified form of the Nernst equation. And as I said, this can accurately predict the plasma membrane potential generated by the diffusion of an ion down its favorable gradient. All right. And again, this valence term for example, for sodium or potassium, right? the valence is the charge on it, which would be plus 1. If we were talking about chloride instead, then Z would be negative 1, since the charge is opposite. All right, so that's what the, the Z term is. That's, So that's the Nernst equation given on page 81, and I'll end the lecture here and pick this up next time. We'll talk about the usefulness and how to think about this equation and relate it to the physiological phenomenon um, that we're gonna talk about because this is a really useful reference point to understanding um, the range of membrane potentials that are possible within a cell.